Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. This week, we have a fascinating discussion about the theory of totalitarianism and its applicability to the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. The discussion actually comes from our first attempt to record an episode about Ian Kershaw's Working Toward the Fuhrer. Kershaw's work is engaged with the larger theory of totalitarianism, and it ended up raising so many different digressions and fascinating thought experiments that it became its own episode. As a side note, I'd like to thank those of you who took the time to rate and review the podcast. We depend on you to reach a broader audience, so it really does help. As an interesting side effect, though, it launched us into the top 100 ratings for the most popular shows in Latvia of all places. So, to our international audience, we say, Hello. All right, and it's time once again for the news. And this week, Chris has something for us. That's right. I've got a conference report here from a workshop that was held at the Museum Arbeitswelt in Steyr, Austria, uh, this last September, September 20, 2016. Um, and the workshop is called Forced Labor in Europe Under Nazi Rule unfree labor in transnational comparison. And it was given during the museum's presentation of the traveling exhibit, Forced Labor in National Socialism. So uh, there were a few presentations given at this workshop that stand out to me as particularly interesting. Uh, the first that, that caught my eye was uh, Frederick Bonisauer's uh, discussion of the role of the uh, Oranienburg city administration in organizing labor for the concentration camp there uh, between 1933 and 1934. And Bonisauer demonstrates that the, the local city administration was involved uh, not just in organizing this labor, but in financing the construction and the expansion of the camp, and that it was then able to draw on the labor of the prisoners in Oranienburg for its own benefit, like putting them, them to work around town. And the point here that Bonasauer was trying to make uh, is that the local administration didn't just know about the camp, and they didn't just tolerate the camp. They were complicit in its operation and reaped the spoils of its forced labor. The local government was an integral part of the development of this concentration camp. Uh, another presentation that I thought was interesting was given by Eva Halama. Uh, and she explores a lesser known 
camp type. And it seems like all of these different uh, camp types, or at least the differences between them, have been gaining a lot more interest. That that new new camp type seems to pop up every now and then. And the one that she's identified are the so-called border delousing camps, where foreign workers who were slated for labor in Germany stopped off uh, on their way into the Reich. So these were these were border camps that they would be brought in and given a medical exam and they were deloused or, or disinfected. And uh, Halama says that these camps are important in understanding the experience for foreigners making their way into Germany in these camps uh, is important because this was their introduction to their new lives as forced laborers. This was their first point of contact with the Nazi state. And this, this is how they were, were processed into the system. Uh, and it's, it's, it has a feel of something that's very dehumanizing and impersonal, that you're treated as, as a good that's being inspected at customs on your way into the country. Mm. Uh, the third presentation uh, that I'd like to talk about was by Verena Meyer. And he takes a linguistic approach to understanding the mechanisms of forced labor. So he's examined the language used to reference Soviet prisoners of war that were forced to work in Germany. Uh, And he he looks at phrases used to reference these Soviet prisoners of war. Things like uh, referring to them as human work machines. Uh, and he argues that this language used by the Nazi regime facilitated the dehumanization and the exploitation of Soviet prisoners of war. Uh, and I'm really sympathetic to this approach, this kind of examination of language. Uh, the importance of, of language to Nazi ideology and practice and behavior was recognized pretty early on. Uh, Victor Klemperer's LTI in 1947 already pointed to the role of specific words in in the Nazi worldview. But we need to keep on exploring this and continue to examine how particular terms and euphemisms were employed, uh, how they affected behavior, how they impacted perpetrators' understandings of, vic- of victim groups, and how the use of particular words and phrases changed in response to contingency. Uh, finally, I want to say a bit about Jutta Fuchshuber's presentation. Uh, she considers the experience of the Mischlinge, so these are Germans of Jewish and German ancestry, categorized in, in the Nuremberg Laws. So the experience of Mischlinge and people in mixed marriages, so that's a Jew married to a German, who were forced to work uh, in Vienna. And while this the conference report doesn't uh, contain a whole lot of information about about what the the actual experience was, what I think is interesting or interesting about this is the source base that Fuchshuber is using. Unlike the foreign workers, this group of forced laborers in Germany were Germans, and after war ended and Hitler's regime collapsed, they remained in Germany. And because they were 
still there, they were able to bring up legal charges in Germany for the mistreatment that they suffered during the Nazi regime. And Fuchshuber uses these post-war trials and the accounts given by Michelin and people in mixed marriages in these post-war trials to reconstruct what happened to them. Hmm. Uh, the workshop closes with a uh, discussion by the participants of the broader themes of the conference, uh, and they search for lessons that can be drawn from it. And they concluded that now there, there are a few big, big takeaway lessons. Uh, first, that attention should be given to tightening up the categories and definitions used to examine forced labor. Uh, and in a similar vein, they recommended that future research should focus on clear questions, to have a good Fragestellung, rather than uh, simply trying to recount the experience of forced laborers in one region or another. So to, to sharpen categories and definitions, tease apart different groups of forced laborers, and to integrate local experience into a, a broader national picture. And that, that was the final takeaway that the, the workshop offered, that researchers should start looking beyond regional case studies and get at, or try to get at, the, the bigger picture of the foreign labor and forced labor experience in Germany. Hmm. Any, anything in particular that you took away or thought was interesting for your own work? This bit about language uh, is, is certainly something that's, that's relevant to what I've been doing. Uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard about this reference of prisoners of war as human work machines, but you know, it certainly fits in with, uh, with the way yeah, the general national socialist rhetoric approaches outsiders. Right. Uh, what, and, and granted, I, I just had a, a relatively brief, brief blurb about this presentation, but what I would be interested in knowing is how, how this kind of phrasing changes or how its, its use changes during the course of the war. Because, well, for me, the, the word that I'm, I'm really interested in is plunderer and what, what that is means. a plunderer yeah. Huh? yeah yeah what does it really mean to be a plunderer does it mean that you are someone who's stolen something or does it just mean that you're uh, an outsider who is theft adjacent <laughs> right yeah so more more reinforcement that the investigation of language is really what's going to reveal the contours of where these different groups are yeah i i mean i think it's it's fundamental and that's that one of the the takeaways that i mentioned from the workshop that the words matter that the the categories and the definitions are important and they should be examined closely how they're referenced how they're formed right well on that note that concludes the news for this week, and we move on to the centerpiece discussion. Uh, so today we are going to once again uh, visit the work of Sir Ian Kershaw, who I think rightfully deserves to be uh, featured in this podcast over and over and over again. Uh, <laughs> this time we're going to be talking about uh, his 
idea of working towards the Fuhrer, of kind of his explanation of how decision-making worked within the structure of the uh, Third Reich's political system. Specifically, we're going to be focusing on the relationship of Kirchhoff's theory to the larger debate about totalitarianism. This idea is tied to a larger debate about how government and decision-making functioned inside of Nazi Germany, and a, a much longer debate about whether you have Hitler as the strong dictator who decides how everything is and makes a total claim on everything that happens in society, or whether a polycratic uh, a government system with many sources of power results in competition and confusion in the Third Reich. And, and that itself is tied into a much larger discussion about what the nature of decision-making and the nature of government looks like in dictatorial societies. And Kershaw is obviously wading into this and saying that because of the fact that Hitler is a charismatic ruler and because of the role that he plays as embodying the idea of a movement, it, it has a very particular effect on the way that Nazism and the way that Nazi Germany functioned as, as a form of government. So where does this, where does this idea come from? Well, uh, as we talked about uh, in discussing the Hitler myth, uh, Kershaw is very interested in the different ways that authority is constructed. And, and he's argued that Hitler uh, based his rule upon charismatic authority. Uh, but in this article, uh, he compares Hitler to another 20th century dictator, Stalin, to really draw out uh, what differentiated a charismatic leader from a bureaucratically inclined leader. Uh, and he argues that, that Stalin uh, is the latter, while uh, Hitler is the, the charismatic leader. Why is there such an interest in comparing Nazi Germany with Soviet Russia? Well, because they're both these big, bad, brutal regimes that murdered millions of people and tried to take over the world, right? Uh, if we can just understand uh, what it is that they have in common, then you know, we understand that, that totalitarian state and the threat that comes along with it. I guess that you're, you're hitting on the key term here, which is kind of, which is part of what Kershaw is taking aim at. What, what is... What is totalitarianism as a, a theory for understanding Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union? And, and what, what, what does Kershaw have to say about that? I think, in a nutshell, uh, a totalitarian state is a state that wants total control over every aspect of the people's lives, the, the people living within that state. From from the outside, I think it's easy to look at, at both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and say yes, these these are both totalitarian states. They want they want full control over the people. Of course, you know, we've talked about how the German people had maybe more autonomy than that. That some things were allowed to slide if they didn't fall in line. That there wasn't necessarily a thought police running around uh, with spies in every corner. But all the same, this this idea of uh, totalitarianism, the totalitarian uh, dictator, has been around uh, for a long time. It goes back to Hannah Arendt, at least. Uh, but Kershaw says that that's a descriptive category, that a 
it doesn't have any power to explain those dictatorships. And that's what he's trying to do in, in comparing uh, Hitlerism and Stalinism. All right, so on, on the face of it, why might we say that uh, Hitler and Stalin are similar? What, are the, what do they have in common, if only in uh, the popular imagination? Well, I think we need a more formal introduction of totalitarianism. Okay, well, why don't you take it? At its core, Arendt's theory is, is really saying that the social movement, whatever political movement, social movement is probably the wrong word, especially in Arendt's, in Arendt's phrasing of, of politics, but in, in totalitarian theory, the political movement that is in control of society is not part of society. It's something outside and separate from it. And it operates through this top-down power dynamic that it uses, it relies on propaganda and mass psychology to create a, a total, it tries to wipe out society and replace it with ideology, and that it accomplishes this goal through terror, specifically. So in Arendt's theory of totalitarianism, you can never have a popular dictatorship. The population doesn't have agency. They are subjects who are forced through coercion to obey the rulers who establish rules for every part of life, every part of society. And, and what Kershaw, because of the other work that we've talked about that he's done with the Hitler myth, and when he looks at the way that government functioned under Hitler, as opposed to the way that the government functioned under Stalin, says that totalitarian theory has a valid goal in trying to compare and contrast Stalinist dictatorship to Nazi dictatorship, but that as a theory to explain something about how those regimes function, he says that it's like comparing apples and oranges, that totalitarian theory is bunk, that what you're doing is you're taking superficial similarities in the fact that you're dealing with a dictatorial regime that has an ideology and and a secret police and a secret police but missing out on the fundamental way of what what it meant to be a citizen in that society or not or be excluded from it and what it meant to actually live there and and he says instead particularly when we're looking at Nazi Germany that we need to understand it through again coming from the lens of the Hitler myth this idea of working toward the fear so, so <laughs> go ahead yes. sorry so let's let's do a little compare and contrast between Hitler and Stalin the way that they interacted with the government was very different as Kershaw points out Stalin was at the head of a an established bureaucratic structure. He was very involved, that he wanted to make decisions. Whereas Hitler was uh, more aloof, not inclined to get up before lunchtime, and actively tried to avoid making decisions in most cases. He, Hitler, was not involved in directly the bureaucratic structures that existed in Germany when he took power. So here, here is a description of Hitler's working day. 
from his forger, former adjutant. He says, quote, Hitler normally appeared shortly before lunch, quickly read through the Reich press chief Dietrich's press cuttings, and then went into lunch. So it became more and more difficult for Lammers, the head of the Reich Chancellery, and Meisner, the head of the pre Presidial Chancellery, to get him to make decisions which he alone could make as head of state. When Hitler stayed at the Ober Salzburg, which is his little private getaway in Austria, it was even worse. There, he never even left his room before 2 p.m. Then he went to lunch. He spent most of the afternoon taking a walk. In the evening, straight after dinner, there were films. He disliked the study of documents. I have sometimes secured decisions from him, even ones about important matters, without his ever asking to see the relevant files. He took the view that many things sorted themselves out on their own if one did not interfere. Yeah, and uh, Speer talks about Hitler's habits in very much the same way uh, in his memoirs, that he spends, spends his day you know, watching movies and, and hanging out with the people that are around. Uh, and this doesn't seem like the way to run a country, right? It, does, it doesn't, it is not the way we would expect an all-powerful totalitarian dictator to act day to day. What's really interesting is how much this contrasts with Stalin's minute involvement in every part of of the of the actual administration of his government, right? So when the when the purges in the Great Terror occur in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, Stalin personally reads through the lists and signs each one himself. He he comes to power as the party secretary. So he builds up these networks through a very explicitly bureaucratic way of, you know, doling out patronage appointments and through the through the day-to-day -day bureaucratic function of the party and the state administration structure. Stalin is at his heart uh, a patronage player who who knows how to exploit his position as party secretary to rise and, and into a place of of really unchallengeable authority and then once there to continue to manipulate that state structure to make sure nobody can mount a challenge to him. But throughout, uh, Stalin was operating within the established structure. He was not tearing it down to the ground and starting anew. Whereas Hitler's style of rule actively eroded the governmental structures that had been in place when he came to power. That he's, you know, appointing people to uh, make decisions as plenipotentiaries, giving, giving individuals power to solve specific problems, uh, which goes, works outside of uh, the bureaucracy that had been established beforehand and gradually took power away from that. Kershaw also goes into comparing the nature of political violence and the party purges, because one of, one of the key points of the totalitarian comparison is that, look, both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union had a party purge. Although the, the party purge in Nazi Germany was dwarfed by the purges in, in the Stalin Soviet Union. Well, it's the first oh. of many important differences, right? Yeah, and, and Kershaw also points out that the motivation uh, for the purges was different as well. That Stalin, having come from within an established system, 
was still vulnerable. There were alternatives within the party to Stalin and that the Soviet Union could live on with Stalin. The Soviet system and Marxism-Leninism didn't need Stalin to continue to, to function. So while Stalin was maybe more insecure than he needed to be, the purges were probably much bigger than they needed to be, there was a real threat. Uh, whereas Hitler was so integral to Nazism and the Nazi movement and the Third Reich that there wasn't really an alternative to him. And because of this, there wasn't the same necessity for purges. Well, yeah, the the entire idea is that the purge in the Soviet Union occurs because the party is... So it comes back to this idea of where does legitimate authority rest? Uh, and, and Kershaw really likes the Max Weber's sociology of legitimate authority. So we talked about it in the Hitler myth episode. It's this idea that you have traditional, you have legal bureaucratic, and you have charismatic. And as we know, Kershaw has made the argument, and there's a lot of evidence, it's a very convincing one, that Hitler's power rests on charismatic authority. So the entire idea of Nazism, the authority of the movement, his ability to claim to be the legitimate ruler of Germany rests in Hitler himself. Whereas in the Soviet Union, the party itself is where the, the legitimate idea rests, right? Like communism is not the ideology of one person. Communism is the ideology of a party. And therefore, the legitimacy that rests with the idea is vested in a bureaucratic institution in the same way that with liberal democracy, the authority and the legitimacy is, is vested in the democratic structures itself, the, the constitutions that define the rights and responsibilities of citizens. That really is what Kershaw is working towards in this entire working towards the Fuhrer uh, argument in doing this comparison uh, between Stalin. He lays out all the points uh, before really hammering home that these are two entirely different ways that authority is, is legitimized. So Kershaw does address the Night of the Long Knives as similar to Stalin's purges, but he kind of just leaves it as that, leaves it at that. Were they so different? Uh, if you leave, leave aside questions of scale. Um, I don't, well, tell me what you think. What's your, what's your take? Well, if we look at you know, Rome and the essay uh, as advancing more radical ideas than Hitler was comfortable with, or more radical ideas than Hitler thought the German people were comfortable with, then that that would be a challenge to him, maybe offering an alternative uh, to his ideas. And I think you have to ask if, if, if Hitler's authority is solely charismatic authority, and, and as you say, yes, there's lots of evidence for it. Uh, how could there be an alternative to him? Uh, how could uh, Rome and the SA offer a challenge that made a purge necessary? Well, I mean, Kershaw's argument here is that Hitler didn't choose to have the purge. Hitler was forced to carry out the purge by Hindenburg and Bloomberg, the head of the army. Or is it still Bloomberg at that point? Or has he already been ousted? Uh, I think he's around till 38. Right. So, so it's this idea that 
Whereas in the Soviet Union, Kirov and the Leningrad wing of the party constitute, because the authority is in the party and in the interpretation of Marxist-Leninist doctrine as expressed by the party, right? Stalin cannot claim to be the legitimate leader of the Soviet Union, except insofar as he can claim to be the legitimate interpreter of, of that authority. But in Germany, there is a similar idea that, well, Hitler is just the embodiment of the will of the German people. It's, it's an idea that it is the will of the people. It's inherently populist in nature. It is a, it is a fluid ideology rather than one that is institutionalized, right? Hitler is a personal embodiment of an ideology, not the head of a party that embodies an ideology. But then that still well, leaves the question, how do we explain the Night of the Long Knives? Well, I'm just, I'm just laying out here, that's, that's the beginning of a very, that's a first basic level difference of how authority works between those two figures. But when you get into... Once you get into the idea of like, well, how do you explain the land of the long knives? It's important because Hitler doesn't necessarily choose the night of the long knives. Uh, Hindenburg, Hindenburg says either you do this or I appoint a new chancellor. Whereas Stalin, because he sees a threat from Kirov, chooses to carry out the purge. Now, there's also an argument that the other side of things is that political violence and the concept of of political violence in Germany is directed and limited to a very small group of political functionaries. Whereas once you get into the Soviet Union, you're into a much larger discussion about the way that the whether or not you distinguish the the great terror of the party purge from the great terror of the mid thirties and the the nationalities operations and war scares that occur in the mid 30s like there's this entire violence remains confined within the party and directed against political opponents in Nazi Germany in a way that in the Soviet Union terror spills over and begins to affect society at large to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people executed a month during the height of it in the mid 30s so one Kershaw is kind of writing before a lot of that research and that discussion had come to the forefront, but just within the confines of party violence, right? There's the fact that it's initiated, Stalin initiates the violence as opposed to Hitler not. I don't know. Well, I suppose they were both reacting to an outside threat to their authority. But it's Maybe. a fundamentally different nature of the threat, right? In in Stalin's case, the threat comes within from within the party as a direct threat to his authority because Kirov represents a legitimate claim to be the interpreter of Marxist-Leninist doctrine. Whereas in Rome's case, Rome is a threat. Rome cannot claim to be the leader. Rome can claim that the ideology has not gone far enough and must continue, but he cannot claim to be the leader, nor is that why he's, why he's executed. He's executed because people who, have, who can appoint a new chancellor tell Hitler that he must do something about this or they will appoint a new chancellor. Well, maybe we could look at 
Rome as a challenging Hitler's vision because uh, so much of the charismatic authority that Hitler had uh, was wrapped up in in how he presented his view of what Germany could be and what Germany should be. And this is important going going further into talking about working towards the Fuhrer, that uh, it was critical that people understood his very specific vision so that they could make decisions that were in line with it. Well, what do you, you, you sound, I suppose, reticent in some ways to accept this critique of totalitarianism and you, what, what is it that you're trying to test here? What's, what's, what's niggling in the back of your mind? Well, just trying to say that, that these two purges were all that different. Why are they the same? Because they are mass violence uh, in response to a challenge to the leader's authority. I don't think that it even comes close to resurrecting totalitarianism. But, you know, it's it's important to, to point out that there were some places where Hitler's leadership style and Stalin's leadership style did have some similarities. And, you know, Stalin praised Hitler uh, after the Night of the Long Knives, basically saying something to the effect of, I didn't, I didn't think he had it in him. Right, but I suppose, I, I do take Kershaw's view that I think that what this does is it confuses superficial similarities for structural, mm. com, for like an actual structural similarity in the ways that the regimes function, right? That's like saying, oh, well, that it, it is, it is what about ism applied to dictatorships as opposed to comparing dictatorships and democracies, right? Like it, yeah, colla it collapses that side of the spectrum, right? Uh, yeah. and, and the Night of the Long Knives was a singular event, whereas Stalin's purges were ongoing for years and years and years. And the Night of the Long, yeah. Yeah, and like who, who are the targets in the Night of the Long Knives, right? Like extrajudicial murder as like a major purge occurs among a small group of of leading functionaries within a specific organization rather than becoming the art like rather than becoming a whole scale murder of people returning from the gulag archipelago so there is a trend in the historiography of the soviet union some people say that you need to separate the party purge and the military purge and the great terror in society as neat little separate boxes I, I really think that that's a, an attempt to just kind of keep things compartmentalized rather than look at the, the larger nature of how the regime was reacting to social disorder and discontent and protest in the late 20s at the end of the new economic plan and then the waves of returnees from the gulags. Like there you like Paul Hagenloh's work is is really quite interesting in that regard. But if we just stick to comparing even the political purges within the party, right? Stalin is initiating a purge because somebody is challenging his authority, whereas in Hitler's case, Hitler is initiating a purge because somebody is going, to, somebody who has power over him is going to replace him, right? Yeah. Like it, it's a fundamentally and, and different. Does say that that the only real potential challenger to Hitler was the military. And this was a moment when he 
could have met his ouster uh, mm-hmm. at the hands of, of the military. And it was also the, the military that was involved in uh, the only other major purge in Nazi Germany uh, after the 20th of July 1944 assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I don't, I just, I don't think that it's productive to compare one data point. Like it's, it's a spectacular one, which is why it tends to sort of dazzle the eye in that respect. But it's, it's not, it doesn't get into the details of it. It just, it, it's kind of like, I, I feel like totalitarian theory is a lot of cherry picking and not yeah. a lot of close analysis because I mean, it's, it's a theory by a political scientist, not historians. Right, so there there isn't kind of that, that and everybody heavy knows that, that political scientists don't really know what they're talking about, right? Well, but political scientists' job is to try and pick data points that they can predict behavior with, right? Like the the they are engaged in a fundamentally different task than historians who are attempting to reconstruct uh, specific events and social dynamics in, in a different way, and so it's not. I think. That they're as disciplines are doing fundamentally different things, right? Um, although I like, I mean, I th- this is just my incredibly long winded way of saying, like, of course you're right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I mean, like, that's that's why they're uh, they're different. And I mean, like, then you can get into the whole the author of totalitarian theory is Hannah Arendt, who is writing from an exile's perspective of uh, an intellectual who comes from close ties with the the Frankfurt school and Marxist intellectuals, all of whom experienced in, like the most extreme persecution that, uh, that existed in the third Reich. And, and she's writing in the context of the 1950s of the emerging cold war from the United States. So it's, it's really a way to equivocate the USSR and Nazi Germany and blame leadership while exculpating the average population. And um, that doesn't work when you look at the historical record, <laughs> at least in Nazi Germany's case. I can't make that call when it comes to the Soviet Union. Yes? No? Yeah. Oh, no. I, I think that uh, totalitarianism uh, as a theory is, is pretty much fallen by the wayside. I don't know that that anyone's using it anymore to try and explain anything. Dude, it's the most popular theory in Washington for discussing closed societies. Like people still regularly refer to totalitarian theory when discussing their discussions about whether or not Russia can be said to present day Russia can be said to be a totalitarian society. It's used as a stand in when discussing uh, North Korean society. It's used. Sure, it's that, it's used to discuss whether it applies to China. It's not just rhetorical, though. Like I mean, but the point is, it it isn't rhetorical. It shapes the way that people and policymakers view societies, and it leads to sloppy foreign policy. And and that's why, as a theory, it should be debunked, and that it should be challenged, and it should be shown to be an intellectually bankrupt concept. Sure. Uh, but it's just so easy, right? But that's why it's an intellectually that, bankrupt concept. <laughs> that, that you can slap on some regime uh, and then justify any kind of uh, sanctions or whatnot you want to do. Well, but don't, don't, like, I mean, 
I think that you're absolutely what you're saying is absolutely true within the historical profession, but don't you hear it regularly whenever you hear anybody in a position of power and influence talking about China, talking about Russia, talking about North Korea? Yeah, absolutely. Even in in casual conversation talking about the Soviet Union or or Nazi Germany. Um, yeah. It's it's still very present. So. But uh yeah. I don't think that Kershaw's project here is necessarily debunking totalitarianism. Like he kind of just starts from that assumption. He he only, he only even throws a few lines at it at the, at the beginning of this article. He's, right. He's trying to do more with this uh, than just show that you know Stalin and Hitler functioned differently. Uh, therefore, there is no uh, one descriptor that fits both of them. Right, but he takes the idea that totalitarianism is a empty concept that compare that draws comparison structural comparisons between superficial outputs, right? That uh, he takes that as granted and then proceeds, but he doesn't really take it. Well, no, he doesn't take it for granted. He asserts it and then he shows through a sustained comparison of what was coming out in the early '90s about Stalin and about the emerging evidence of the purge and and everything like that that was going on in the Soviet Union and Soviet historiography that that was not how Hitler worked and he focuses on leadership and he comes around to this idea of working towards the Fuhrer as a f the core concept about the fundamental difference in the way that the dictator led the Soviet Union and led Nazi Germany respectively he says that this the totalitarian theory is not representative because sociological theory is more representative and they they rely on fundamentally different structures of legitimization and in the function of government in in the everyday in the everyday function of the regime was that did that make sense because I, I think that's really the core of it right like it is very much in dialogue with totalitarian theory and everything that was coming out about comparative studies with the Soviet Union in the early 90s I mean, like you had all the secret archives open in Moscow and you have all the stuff come out about the about the Great Terror and things like that. You have all of these old factory records being and denunciations being compared with experiences in Nazi Germany. Right. All the stuff that Sovietologists have been guessing at for about, well, I don't know how many years, 40 years at that point could all of a sudden be subjected to historical research. But it seems that this project here is more demonstrating that Max Weber's sociological theory works uh, to explain both Stalin and Hitler using different kinds uh, of uh, legitimation. Right. Like but that's, that's, that's really what he's doing. Yeah. It's one page of totalitarian theory doesn't work and 16 pages of, and this is why Max Weber is who you should be using. So what's the core difference in his in, in his argument? Well, that Hitler is a charismatic leader and Stalin is a legal bureaucratic leader. And he is pointing out these, uh, he says, uh, superficial similarities and showing where they're not really similarities. Uh, and at each point, demonstrating that Hitler was functioning through charismatic authority, where Stalin is functioning through legal bureaucratic authority. So what does he mean when 
like we've discussed some of the stuff about Stalin as much as it comes up in the article, but how 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 is Hitler functioning fundamentally differently? Well, okay, so he talks about uh, the the goals of each regime, and uh, he says that you know, both both were brutal, uh, but the Soviet Union had rational, specific goals that it wanted to industrialize uh, a backwards country, it wanted to introduce socialism uh, in one country, and that these were goals that were were rooted in in the party not in Stalin, that they had a longer history than him, and they were built into the structure of the state. Whereas Hitler didn't have, he says, specific goals. He had kind of a fuzzy plan uh, to create you know, a racially pure regime uh, and expand it out into a racial empire. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you comfortable uh, with with what he says about uh, Hitler not having specific goals? Uh, I'm not sure that I am. I'm, am. I, I think that he laid out pretty clearly uh, what he hoped to do. Kershaw kind of writes it off as as a a utopian fantasy, but he he was trying to build something. He was clear in Mein Kampf what what that thing was i think that might be a, a functionalist overstatement from from kershaw's perspective that and this is a debate about whether or not hitler came in intending to carry out the holocaust or whether the holocaust was something that developed and the concept of all of these people working towards hitler's vision is what um is is one of his sort of cornerstone arguments in that entire idea but so I, 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 I definitely, I see what you're saying. And yeah, I think you're right. To say that Hitler didn't have goals is incorrect. It's correct to say he didn't have policies, but he did have goals. Yes. And he definitely did not know how they were going to get there. And I agree with the analysis that he did not come in thinking that they were going to wipe out the Jews of Europe and kill them right but that to say that he didn't have goals would be an overstatement yeah, that's why I, people could work toward them that, that, yeah that he wanted a a racially pure community and that he wanted to seize living space for that community it's worth pointing out in this respect that kershaw is also quite hostile to the idea of volksgemeinschaft Kershaw's trick is to call any theory that he disagrees with descriptive. And I haven't figured out what he means by descriptive versus analytic and what what he would point to as an analytic theory that is successful. And I I would be interested to know the difference. Maybe he's in dialogue with some sociology and political science that I'm definitely not aware of, but the difference between a descriptive and an analytic or a predictive theory, right? And that descriptive is his favorite kind of dismissive term for Volksgemeinschaft and for totalitarianism as bankrupt theories that don't actually tell you how the regime functioned, right? Point here being, yeah, Volksgemeinschaft is key to the iteration of, of Hitler's goals. And so if you don't, if you don't accept that people's community is a, is a, a rubric for policy 
then you can say that Hitler didn't have goals. And instead, what he does is he comes back to like to Michael Burley and the the racial state, the which made a big splash, but I, again, I think reduces Nazism to the Holocaust rather than a much broader social program, albeit one where citizenship is defined in terms of race. And because he's he's called the goals of the Soviet Union rational, do you think that that may be part of the reason why he doesn't, or maybe nobody wants to see a Nazism as a project that was trying to, was actively trying to, to construct a specific vision of the world. Yeah, this idea that it's a it's a romantic movement rather than a rational one. Um, or even just that it's so reprehensible. Hmm, that's a really good question, actually. So the way that he defines rational, I think we should point out for our listeners here, is uh, to say that the Soviet Union pursued limited defined goals, rapid industrialization and socialism in one country, as defined by Stalin, were finite goals. They had an endpoint. They had a criteria that you could check off and say, we are we have achieved this and therefore they were rational goals. When he says that the goals of Nazi Germany were irrational, I mean, that's a loaded term, but I, I think technically speaking, the way that he's defining rational and irrational and this is, is correct as well because Nazi Germany did not define goals, right? It, it, def- it did not define a measurable criteria for what was success or failure. It did have the four-year plan, right? But the four-year plan was an interim goal, not an end state. It didn't have a socialism in one country. It had uh, a goal of restoring German greatness, restoring Germany's stature, restoring a, a return to a lost golden age and a redress of certain, certain slights against the German people and, and inequities brought about by the First World War and the Versailles Treaty. But, but those were all specific goals, rolling back the provisions of the Versailles Treaty, rearming. But no, those things weren't an end state, right? It wasn't Germany needs to become a country on an equal footing with the rest of the world. It was a it was an attempt to pursue a policy objective that was limitless and boundless. And, um, but, but socialism in one country wasn't really an end state either. Uh, there was still a view that that was another step towards an eventual utopian world. Well, that would be, that would be part of uh, Robert Galatly's broader arguments about the nature of Stalin's vision for communism as opposed to the understanding of communism under and, and, and of Stalinism as a, a limited socialism in one country goal, right? So so there there is a debate to be had there. But just in terms of you don't you don't see that as a productive point of comparison that I mean like it it's it's not a communism under Stalin does not present a totalizing claim 
on the world, right? Like it presents a set of objectives to achieve and then that's it. It's not uh it's not a utopian it is a utopian no, it's not even utopian. It, it it's pursuing socialism and a socialist power structure within the Soviet Union rather than communism and specifically global revolution. Well, the reason that this is important is that Kershaw says that because the Soviet Union had specific goals, it didn't go through a process of cumulative radicalization, uh, whereas Nazi Germany did because it wasn't clear what exactly they were aiming for. So uh, people kept reaching a little bit further and reaching a little bit further uh, until you wind up with, with all the horrors of you know, the, the regime uh, going into the war. That does tend to overlook historical contingency and the scope of time that we're dealing with, right? That the um, Soviet Union did radicalize uh, prior to the new economic plan under war communism. It did radicalize in the collectivization drives. It did radicalize during the Great Terror. It pulled back from each of them, but in, pursu in pursuing an infinite objective, in terms of eliminating kulaks, eliminating wreckers, eliminating saboteurs who were the reactionary classes that were supposedly opposing communism, kulaks being the Russian word for fist, like these reactionary peasants who were supposedly preventing, um, pre preventing all of these, these goals from being met. I did very much pursue abstract goals. Um, and well, in 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 a in a reformation of society as well. But but the point here that he's trying to make is that because the Soviet Union under Stalin was a legal bureaucratic state, it had these specific goals, and that it could go through these radical periods, but it would always retreat back away from them once the goals achieved. Uh, whereas he's saying Nazi Germany, relying on charismatic authority uh, embodied in Hitler and his fuzzy goals uh, continued to radicalize more and more uh, trying to achieve these these goals that were ultimately unreachable because they were undefined that, well that there could be no retreat to the previous uh, bureaucratic norms mm -hmm. that the nature of leadership was inimical to a rational bureaucratic form of government it, in itself it was toxic and corrosive to that as a form of government because it relied on authority vested in a single individual who set unknowable and undefinable criteria for success and i i think criteria for success in the entire the entire concept of performance auditing actually and the the comparison of like when you're talking about rationalization, it's it's closely associated with management and like production problems and World War One and everything that's come out of that and gone into the MBA since. But the the idea that you are defining you are defining your problem, you're defining your success state, and you're defining your criteria for having achieved a success state, and you're defining your criteria for a failure state, right? And 
then you're pursuing and either checking the boxes or saying, well, we haven't reached a point where we can say that we can check that boxes off. And it's in its most, in its most concrete way, you can point to the Soviet Union and quotas and the way that the quota ruled life in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, right? Um, you could you could have an entire side discussion about how quotas kept increasing, right? But um, the idea is that you are using modern bureaucratic rational forms of management in government, whereas in Nazi Germany, you are relying on the charismatic authority of a single individual and their vision of the end state right that like i'll let you know when we get there but that's the direction we're headed right like <laughs> not and not that there weren't plenty of quotas in nazi germany but mm -hmm. they tended to be issued by one plenipotentiary or another who was trying to uh, achieve a specific and, and sometimes vague goal uh, that hitler had appointed them to achieve mm-hmm Hmm. All right, be before we move away from Stalin and, and Hitler and the comparison of the two and into this idea of working towards the Fuhrer itself, I want to hit one more point that, that Kershaw brings up. Uh, he says that the Soviet Union, because it was a, a legal bureaucratic state, could survive without Stalin, whereas the Nazi regime had to have Hitler. It's its charismatic leader mm -hmm. uh, that it couldn't that the Nazi dream could not reproduce itself, uh, whereas the Soviet Union could. I like this idea a lot, and if you buy everything that that Kershaw uh, has been selling, it, it's absolutely necessary. If if the the whole Nazi state uh, is built on on Hitler's authority, then it doesn't work without him. That nobody else could challenge him, could offer an alternative the way that, that someone else within the Communist Party might, uh, to Stalin. And and I suppose that the, the Nazi regime was destined to be short-lived uh, regardless of the war and whatnot. But what do you think about this? Uh, could Nazi Germany function without Hitler? The pedantic historian in me says, eh, well, you can't know that because there's no sources and eh, that's a counterfactual and blah, blah, blah. But... Well, oh, and I'm not. I'm not asking you to uh, imagine a world where, where the Nazis win and Hitler dies and is. Uh, well, but you have to to evaluate that claim. <laughs> to evaluate that claim, you have to assume that Nazi Germany somehow survived. And Kershaw says, Kershaw sets up a closed system where the outcome was inevitable because the war was inevitable and because the war was intrinsic to Nazism and the war destroyed Nazism. Ergo. No matter how you roll the dice, every time Hitler ends up burning himself up in an armed conflict, right? Well, but I mean, if Hitler is just a weak dictator, then Nazism works without Hitler. Not necessarily. You still need a figurehead who serves a very specific purpose, right? And there's no guarantee that someone else could have come along and fulfilled that role. But there's also no guarantee that you couldn't have, like, I don't know. Marxist Leninism of the of the parties uh, of the of the communist parties of the world of the 1960s and 70s revolutionary Marxist Leninism in third world unaligned countries and the second world countries where successful revolutions are carried out are not the same 
as the Marxist-Leninism of 1917 to 1921 are not the same as real existing socialism of the 1970s, which is, you know, a command economy, right? But not, not really Marxist-Leninism, except after many contortions. But it's, uh, like, I, there's nothing to say that a Borman couldn't have come along and pulled a Stalin and made himself into the high priest of the party, and the party could have become the vehicle for the ideology rather than Lenin, right? Or like, you know what I mean? Like, so Stalin's rise to power is predicated on the idea that Lenin becomes a revolutionary charismatic figure and the font of all communist wisdom. He becomes the high priest of Marx and the ideology. And so what Stalin does to outmaneuver everybody is to say, well, actually, I'm just the humble head of an apparatus that interprets the will of these great geniuses who understand this ideology. And um, I myself am not a charismatic figure. The ideology is what we strive to fulfill. And he sort of like, he jujitsus his way into becoming the interpreter of that ideology. I There's nothing to say that somebody couldn't have done that with Hitler. Why? Why, why could Hitler not have been uniquely in touch with the... Uh, with the will of the German people, but some Nazi functionary not be uniquely in touch with Hitler's interpretations. So I don't know. What do you think of that? I I, I guess it depends on and how you see the decision-making structure of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it is all about an idea and Hitler is just someone to rally around, then sure, somebody else could could come along and and say that they understand Hitler's idea and take take on the mantle uh, and and lead from there. But if it's the way that Hitler himself actually interacts with a chaotic regime, then that's important. Then then Kershaw's right. It it can't be reproduced. Well, but the question then is communism reproducing its. Sorry. Well, I'm asking, do you you need someone in Hitler's position that not only uh, presents the ideology, but is also a hands-off dictator who rules through personal relationships, uh, appointing people to positions for specific tasks, uh, sometimes multiple people for the same task, setting up competitions, laying out broad goals and and letting people try and find the, the methods to achieve those goals on their own. All of these are very personal characteristics of Hitler and the way that that the system functioned with him. And and Kershaw's saying that that he's critical, that Hitler, the man, uh, is the linchpin of the whole system. Uh, even if he doesn't get up before lunch. He doesn't, he doesn't need to. That's that's not his role, uh, and that that he couldn't be replaced by somebody else. Right. But what I'm saying is that regardless of Lenin's insane work schedule, right, uh, compared to, compared to Hitler's, as I believe the the common adjective is more bohemian lifestyle, um, the the idea that you we never get to see what the Nazi middle class would have looked like, right? Like a communist 
middle class of apparatchiks emerges under Stalin and emerges through patronage networks that run through the general secretariat. So that is important in the way that the charismatic authority of Lenin, the revolutionary, becomes routinized and becomes institutionalized into the party. Um, Kershaw makes a good point in that Hitler always avoided institutionalizing these things, right? Uh, and that he was allergic to creating a space to institutionalize those things. But, I mean, look at what Bormann was doing. Look at the way that the entire regime, the function of the regime changed and access to power ran through Bormann and the chancellery and control over the mail and who could who could talk to Hitler determined who could implement policy. And that started to run through Bormann in, in a very important way as time went on, in a way that had not earlier, as, as Hitler grew older and more isolated. So what I'm saying is there, there's nothing, there's nothing to, we, we don't have a post-war Nazism that would show us what uh, 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 an entire generation of Nazi functionaries and the power struggle between Himmler and Bormann would have played out and whether the party would have closed ranks against the SS or the SS would have, you know, who, who could have, we don't know how the power struggle for the mantle of Hitler's high priest played out in the way that we do for the Soviet Union. But I think that it is, um, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the assertion that the system of government was, was destined to failure. At that point, all of the most ideologically committed people are in all of the most important, like you have Yodel and you have Himmler, Yodel and the army and Himmler and the police and the ministry of the interior and Bormann with the party structure. The most committed people are the ones who control violence, uh, the state monopoly on violence. And that means that they have the ability to, to, to determine what the future would look like. So why would they not? Like, there's no way that something's going to come out of the population. Why would you not have a, a power struggle within the elite, right? Somebody would have come out on top if the war hadn't ended it. Well, what, what Kershaw is saying, though, is that all of these different actors that are exercising violence need Hitler to legitimize what they're doing. That they need to be able to to point to him uh, to justify everything. Uh, and right, but why could Lenin claim to be the the interpreter of Marx? Right? Why could Stalin claim to be the interpreter of Lenin? Right. Like it, it, it doesn't grapple with the transfer of power and the way that the ideology, a revolutionary ideology, independent from its creators, became routinized and institutionalized as the party. Right. Like it just it doesn't engage with that entire process of Soviet historiography. Because so we don't have the evidence to do it for the Nazi historiography can work without the leader 
Well, I mean, the entire argument of like both both on sociology that's been done on like Mao and the the Chinese Communist Party and the research that's that's been done on communism and the and the Soviet Communist Party and what's being said in this article about what Kersh how Kershaw is reading that historiography is that there is an argument that uh the movement is charismatic the party carries the charisma the charisma of the idea and the mission lives in the party not in the individual right so certain people can certain people can drive the party for a while but they can never become they can never embody the idea personally in the same way that nazism is personally embodied but to say that nazism couldn't become embodied in the party that bears its name that followed a leader that is based around a cult of interpreting one man's will. Like, why can't you just have a high priest of the dead dictator? Right? Like that's what Stalin was. That's what Lenin was. So that that's my point, I suppose. And, and what a lot of the interesting stuff is said about like the way that the party institutionalized Mao and Maoism to uh, the, the Chinese communist party institutionalized Mao and Maoism to marginalize him and then the way that he fought back and regained control through the through the the cultural revolution but um like i, I mean there in, in in the societies that have a longer history because they weren't cut short by a war i think that there's processes that you can you can draw important similarities to or possibility or not important similarities but uh, there are processes that you can point to to say that the ideology can be routinized in an, an important way. Charismatic ideology created by an individual can become uh, something something institutionalized. And the stagnation, it goes through stagnation and revivals and everything like that as certain people claim to successfully or unsuccessfully interpret or implement or act upon that ideology. But I mean, that's just the history of ideas and politics. Right, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I I do feel like you're you're stretching charismatic authority a, a bit far there by imparting it onto bureaucratic structures. No, but the point it, is that it does become routinized, point. right? Like the the ideology of liberalism was an ideology before it was institutionalized in, like, before people could make claims to be representatives of it and then institutionalize it into a set of completely new, uh, uh, like the idea of a constitution that was an independent separate authority. Right. It's just, um, yeah. And I, and I don't think that, that Kershaw is saying that, that Nazi Germany, if it had won a war would end in revolution or collapse. But I think he is saying that it wouldn't function the same way without Hitler. That it would not be the the same Nazi movement. That it wouldn't have the same structure without Hitler. Well, he doesn't address that at, at any point. Like that would be a given. Like it says that it. He says that Nazism could not exist without Hitler. Well, he says it, it couldn't reproduce itself. Exactly, which is to say that yeah. the entire regime would collapse. So either yeah. that is so that there are two options with that, right? The ex, you can extrapolate from that that either communism did not reproduce itself and became something different, which is an argument with merit. Mm -hmm. 
or you can say that Nazism would have just collapsed, right? Like it, it's a very slippery way to get around what he's saying. It feels like, you know what I mean? Not, not well, intentionally I, but I, so, but, but I think, I, I think it doesn't making, really engage. I think that's why he's making the point in the first place though, is to highlight the importance of Hitler, the individual to the structure of decision-making in Nazi Germany to into the way that the state functioned. Under Hitler. But what I'm saying is that he, he speaks from a, an unassailable position because anything again, what he is making a counterfactual claim that there is yeah. no evidence to support. And mm -hmm. every, this whole discussion has just been speculation, but yeah. in making the claim, he does not engage with the same process that occurred with communism or the process that would have, that did play out under communism and specifically Soviet Marxist Leninist revolutionary communism, right? Like what he does is he say it couldn't happen and you can't counterclaim him, but nor does he engage with the process that happened in the Soviet union or the process that happened in communist China. And it's it's not a claim. It's not a stretch. You should really read the Maoist stuff. The Maoist stuff is really interesting because you have, you you have a charismatic leader in the sense of a cult of personality embodying a specific Chinese communist ideology, Maoism. That is not Marxist Leninism. It is Maoism that becomes the basis for a party that tries to edge him out in his own lifetime, and then you have a a fight. You have a fight against that, and then you have an actual process. It carries on. So like if we step outside our little Eurocentric bubble here for a minute, there is a direct parallel in terms of an individual or, well, I don't know. I can make that with like no claim with zero background in the actual party history beyond a couple books, right, of, of, of Communist Party of China. But that process seems like one where the comparative speculation should be occurring at least, right? Whereas it's not, Kershaw doesn't engage with it at all. I, I, I do want to get on to the explanation of, of working towards the fear um, <laughs> but i i just feel like we're not quite done with this yet well i think that's um, why it's a good article like it, yeah. it, it 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 sparks debate and on that note we draw this installment of the third Reich history podcast to a close we'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time until then